2: The Economist.
3: Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbi.
2: And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
3: In vitro fertilization, or IVF, has helped millions of people have children who otherwise couldn't. But if the tech were cheaper and more accessible, it would help millions more. Could change beyond the horizon.
2: And let me tell y'all a little something about the southern accent. It's changing. Our language columnist looks into the generational and geographic shifts in vowel sounds that are affecting a familiar drawl. First up, though. Not so long ago, the perception of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX was as the business that would bring crypto to the masses. A glossy little glimpse of the future packaged up in pricey Super Bowl adverts featuring stars like comedian Larry David.
0: Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never.
2: Funnily enough, he wasn't wrong. FTX folded a year ago, leaving an $8 billion hole. Lots of fingers pointed at the firm's co-founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, once seen as a boy genius destined to be a trillionaire. How you
1: doing, Sam? one. <laughs> thank
4: you, guys. Thank you, thank you.
2: Mr. Bankman-Fried's trial that started a month ago, those Super Bowl adverts were some of the first evidence to be shown. And yesterday, Mr. Bankman-Fried was convicted on seven charges.
1: There is another late-breaking story as we're on the air tonight in the financial fraud trial of former cryptocurrency billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried. Crypto King was charged with two counts of fraud and five counts of conspiracy.
2: Outside the courtroom, U.S. Attorney Damian Williams called him the perpetrator of one of the biggest financial frauds in American history.
1: Here's the thing, the cryptocurrency industry might be new. Players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new.
0: This kind of fraud, this kind of corruption, is as old as time. And
1: we have no patience for it.
2: It wasn't just one crypto exchange that Mr. Bankman-Fried's actions buried. With it went lots of hope and credibility for the whole crypto industry.
4: My initial reaction is just that it really took the jury no time at all to decide that Sam Bankman-Fried was guilty of these seven counts of fraud.
2: Alice Fullwood is Wall Street correspondent for The Economist and one of the hosts of Money Talks, our podcast on business, finance and economics.
4: He won't actually be sentenced for a little while. His sentencing is scheduled to take place on March 28th, 2024. And the maximum sentence that he will face is 110 years. But in all likelihood, he probably won't get quite that long. They actually deliberated uh, from about 3pm until about 7.30, so only just over four hours, and that actually included a a break for dinner. So they came to their decision extremely quickly and i think that really gets to just how overwhelmingly strong the evidence was against sam bankman fried and just how well the trial went for the prosecution and this is the crowning moment on a trial that has taken about a month and one of the biggest fraud cases in american history
2: but let's wind back and talk through the the whole trial what happened along the way
4: so the trial kicked off on October 3rd with jury selection, and there have been 15 days of testimony from various witnesses since. That includes Sam Bankman-Freed, who took the stand in his own defence. And in general, he tried to blame uh, the missing funds on various accounting mistakes, you know, mistakes he had made in the way he'd structured FTX, and in particular, its relationship with Alameda, which was a hedge fund that he had also founded uh, that was really sort of core to to the things that went wrong at FTX. In addition to the testimony from Sam bankman Freed, we also got testimony from Caroline Ellison, who was the boss of Alameda, that hedge fund. Uh, She was uh, a former girlfriend of Sam bankman Freed, and she was a real sort of star witness for the prosecution. We also heard from Gary Wang, who was a sort of coder that uh, Sam had met as a teenager at maths camp. And the other sort of big witness for the prosecution was uh, Nishad Singh, who was another coder at FTX. And uh, a lot of the people that were in the courtroom said that Nishad was really, he was the sort of the best storyteller of the witnesses that the prosecution brought. He sort of told these sort of very cinematic vignettes about confronting Sam and and how, uh, how distraught he was about uh, what he realized had gone on.
2: And you were in the room for some of Sam Bankman-Fried's testimony, right? How did that go?
4: Yes, I did make the effort to go down to the courthouse for the days that Sam Bankman-Fried was testifying. He was on the stand for about four days. Um, And in general, his testimony didn't go that well. He laid out various excuses for the ways in which Alameda and FTX had had this kind of incestuous relationship. So FTX, you know, was the exchange, that was where customers deposited their money. They did that thinking that it would be sort of safe, and that FTX would custody it on their behalf and look after it, and that they could sort of use those funds to trade on the exchange. And in reality, what was going on is that essentially from the start of FTX, uh, it was testified, Alameda had various ways to borrow essentially unlimited amounts of customer money from FTX. So it Could have a negative balance. It had a $65 billion line of credit um, and it was sort of exempted from these so called liquidation procedures. So that meant that when other customers uh, started losing money on their trades, they might have their accounts closed down. Uh, That was never going to happen to Alameda. And in general, his excuses for those things, they sounded sort of somewhat reasonable. He said that initially Alameda was uh, sort of the only big market maker that would work with FTX. So it was the only way for FTX to be able to sort of offer trading in certain sort of tokens. And it sort of really helped them offer good prices for their customers at the beginning. And that was why it had all of these privileges. And I think that is an excuse a jury could have swallowed. The problem was that there had been, you know, countless hours of testimony from his former friends, former girlfriends, people he'd known his entire life, essentially saying that those privileges were abused. At one point, Alameda was borrowing about 80% of the total customer funds that had been deposited onto FTX. It put almost all of that money into extremely illiquid venture investments. It spent it on endorsements. Uh, It spent it on luxury property, on private jets, um, sort of all of these uh, sort of personal expenses for uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and some of the other employees at FTX. And so it was always a long shot afterwards. We'd heard all of that, uh, that the jury were ever going to be convinced by his testimony, and it it doesn't seem to have helped him.
2: Which is kind of to say that it was essentially an open and shut case.
4: I think going into the trial, people thought the government probably had quite a strong case. But as the trial progressed, it really did become just overwhelming how much evidence they had, how much unity there was among the sort of three witnesses that testified for the prosecution that essentially Sam had been in charge and had really directed them at various points to do things that ultimately resulted in this sort of fraud taking place. There were a couple of moments that people have highlighted to me uh, while I was sort of waiting in the the long queue outside the courthouse to get in um, that really seemed to have convinced jurors. And one was essentially just how distraught and remorseful in particular, Caroline and Nishad seemed. Caroline was in tears as she was describing how as FTX collapsed and she realized Alameda was not going to be able to pay uh, all of the customer money back, she was sort of fighting back tears, uh, saying that she actually felt relieved that it had finally all come crashing down because she'd been dreading this day, sort of knowing that it was going to happen for months.
2: But in a bid to understand the sort of the wider crypto picture here, let's wind back to how we even got to the trial part of things.
4: Yeah, one of the remarkable things about this story is actually just how quickly all of this happened. Sam bankman fried only founded FTX in 2019. And extremely quickly, it became uh, sort of a pretty successful exchange. And by 2021, you know, it had millions of customers uh, and billions of dollars of, of assets deposited on it. And that was really because people seemed to think that he'd done something kind of special. He seemed to have built a higher tech, quicker exchange that seemed to sort of Offer people better prices um, than they were able to get elsewhere. He was playing nice with regulators. He was this sort of casual, quirky billionaire who was going to usher crypto into the mainstream. He was really seen as the industry's future. And things unraveled unbelievably quickly. There was this balance sheet leaked from Alameda, which showed that all of its assets were these sort of very illiquid crypto tokens that Sam had invented. That made people think that it might be in trouble. They started to pull their assets out. um, And within sort of five days, uh, he'd filed for bankruptcy. About a month later, he was arrested in the Bahamas where FTX was based. He was very quickly extradited to the US, posted bail. And the government has sort of been very quick in bringing their case, they managed to flip the three witnesses we've talked about: Gary, Caroline, and Rashad. Very, very quickly, they all pled guilty to sort of various financial fraud charges between sort of November and January of last year, and they've been very quick to sort of bring the case to trial. So the entire story of FTX from inception to conviction is really only four years long.
2: But one thing that, that's missing from that timeline is is still billions of dollars. Where did the money go?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. So when FTX filed for bankruptcy, there was this $8 billion hole. So there were still sort of $8 billion of customer assets deposited on the exchange, and it couldn't pay them back. Now, it's become clear that Sam didn't exactly pocket that 8 billion dollars. A lot of it went into venture investments, seemingly about sort of 5 billion dollars went into sort of various investments that he wanted to make in companies like Anthropic, which actually has done very well. Some of the others seem to have not done quite so well. A lot of money also went into things like real estate, endorsement deals, but it does look as though through a process of finding sort of random cryptocurrency wallets that people at FTX had, had forgotten about, through selling off many of these sort of illiquid venture investments that they obviously couldn't sell off in the space of a week last year. And also because crypto markets have actually gone up in the year since FTX failed, it does look like liquidators might be able to return a pretty high rate of funds to customers, something around sort of 90%.
2: So to your mind, Alice, what's been the impact, do you think, of this whole sorry saga on the the crypto industry more widely?
4: The failure of FTX really was the sort of pinnacle of devastation, I guess, for a pretty terrible year for crypto in 2022. So you had various projects come unstuck, hedge funds go bust. You might remember the sort of Terra Luna algorithmic stablecoin crisis that was in the summer. And then it all sort of built up to the failure of FTX, which was by far the biggest crypto enterprise to go down. Since that happened, though, actually, things have sort of firmed up a bit in the crypto markets. So over the last year, uh, Bitcoin is actually up by about 100%. But far few people are, are talking about that now, partly because of the sort of massive reputational hit that crypto took after sort of various frauds were exposed, sort of scams came unstuck. And in general, sort of all of the things that happened in 2022. So market prices have recovered a little, but I don't think it, that's quite the same as saying that crypto has really
2: recovered. Thanks for joining us, Alice. Thank you so much. Yesterday on Money Talks, Alice and the other hosts had a good long look at executive pay. The typical S&P 500 boss now makes about 250 times America's median full-time wage. But is it time to lop some zeros off those paychecks? It's a tricky one to hear that and all of our tasty weekly content and the next episode of the weekend intelligence that drops tomorrow perhaps i could interest you in a subscription to economist podcasts plus that is if you're not already a print or digital subscriber to the economist in case you missed the boat so far you can get a free 30-day trial subscription by going to the show notes or just searching for economist podcasts get in there now talk to you tomorrow
3: This video I'm watching looks like any other family home video. There's a toddler in the garden, toddling about, taking a few awkward steps and then falling over. The baby's mother scoops her up and shows her around a house which is primed for a birthday party. There are cards, presents, party food. It's 1979, so you can imagine the spread. And then the mother, with a child in her arms, gives an interview to a news reporter.
5: She's say quite a few words now. She's been
6: walking for nearly two months. Um, if the gate's not there, she'd walk up the stairs. She emptied
1: the cupboards out.
3: <laughs> it was a miraculous occasion. Louise Brown, The first baby to be conceived by in vitro fertilization, IVF, was turning one. In the decades that followed, that cutting-edge, pioneering technology has been used millions of times over. It's also become big business. In a recent issue of our Technology Quarterly, Economist journalists went deep into the world of IVF, the money and the technology powering it, and where it could go from here. But despite it providing medical miracles on a daily basis, access to treatment still remains beyond reach for many women all over the world.
5: All human beings born before 1978, when this technology was introduced, were conceived inside a
3: woman's body. Sasha Nauter is The Economist's social affairs editor.
5: Whereas today, I mean, it is miraculous. There are at least 12 million people around the world who started off life in laboratory glassware and you know today as we speak on average four more of such babies are born every 3 minutes.
3: Sasha give us a sense of where we are today. How big is IVF these days? How much has demand changed since 1978?
5: Well, or it really depends on where you are globally. We think about one in every 175 newborns are now born through IVF. But in some countries like Denmark, where it's very, very common, it's almost one in 10. Whereas in other parts of the world, you know, the technology is basically not accessible at all. So it really varies. But I mean, I think a pretty big number is over... Three million IVF cycles are done every year now, which is an awful lot more than back in the 80s. And the big difference really is in terms of how common it is in your country is how accessible is it. So I mentioned Denmark. Israel is another country. These are countries where the government has decided this is a priority. And so it is more or less free to the point of use to use IVF for anybody who needs it. Whereas in a lot of other countries and most of the world, IVF is still, unfortunately, prohibitively expensive and therefore not accessible to most people who need it. How expensive are
3: we talking here?
5: Well, in the US, where I did most of the reporting from, an IVF cycle can quite easily cost about $20,000. That's before starting to spend money on so-called add-ons. So you really can spend an insane amount of money just on one cycle. Most people will need multiple cycles to be successful if indeed they are successful. A really interesting study looked at lower income countries and that found that on average between 50 and 200 percent of annual average income is the cost of an average IVF cycle. So think about that, right? You know, you're basically having to save up to twice your annual income to have a single cycle of IVFs.
3: So IVF could do so much more for fertility if it weren't so expensive. What's being done to remedy that?
5: There's two things that can and are being done up to a point to remedy that. So, one is simply bringing the cost per procedure down. And the other is to subsidize treatment, right? To widen access. So, on the first, on bringing costs down, there is some movement. There are definitely some interesting startups who are working on reducing the cost of what happens um, in the lab through automation, also through standardisation. There's also certainly work on the subsidising treatment, as I say. Gradually, more countries are seeing this for different reasons as something that governments should be subsidising. The final way of making it more accessible is indeed employers covering this. So again, this started in Silicon Valley, with some of the, you know, tech companies saying, oh, as a perk, we'll cover IVF. Again, those kind of health plans is gradually increasing as well.
3: And Sasha, this has been so much more than a regular reporting process for you.
5: It has. It's been professionally very fulfilling, because as you and I've just discussed, it's a totally fascinating field. But Behind all those impressive stats, you know, the, the 12 million IVF babies, etc., sits an awful lot of failure and an awful lot of pain and, and disappointment. My co-author, Katrine Brake, and I both have very real experience with this, and we felt it was important to include that side of the story when writing this TQ. It's a story much less told when talking about the so-called miracle technology of IVF And so we felt lucky to, in an upcoming episode of The Weekend Intelligence, reflect on this a bit more. And I really hope it will help add to people's understanding of IVF and its future, but also the reality of what it's like to go through this process. We did five IUI cycles, followed by six IVF
6: cycles. Seven IVF stimulation cycles, one IVF stimulation cycle that failed. 350 injections.
5: Although we've had different journeys in terms of the clinics we've gone to and the issues we've run into, actually the basic stats are strikingly similar.
6: Two frozen embryo transfers, approximately 260 injections.
5: 82 eggs were harvested, 35 eggs, 51 eggs that were were fertilised.
6: 17 Twenty-one embryos.
5: embryos were good enough for placement. Seventeen embryos were actually placed. Eight negative pregnancy tests. Fourteen negative pregnancy tests. Three One positive pregnancy, pregnancy test. tests.
6: A lot of it is just trying and trying and trying again.
5: About £20,000. Two miscarriages. I also always did feel a little bit like an inconvenience at that point for the clinic. You know, that's not what they want.
6: £40,000, one ectopic pregnancy or pregnancy of unknown location. Five years in treatment. And four and a half years of treatment still ongoing. You try and you try again and you and you try again. And, and for, for my, my partner, partner
5: 15 visits eight visits to the, to the sperm, sperm sample room. Sample room.
6: I've never been in one of these rooms, thankfully. Um, The words used are always grubby, awkward. Sticky. Dog-eared magazines, well-thumbed magazines. (laughs) Wipe clean chairs.
5: The waiting room for the room is also awkward because... (laughs) <laughs> Cause you have like three or four guys very busily looking at their shoes and very much not making eye contact as they go in and out of the out of the rooms. And yes, these inexplicable DVD players, which is like in twenty twenty three. Um I'm just gonna leave that out there.
3: And that episode is dropping this Saturday with Sasha and her colleague, Katrin Baik. It really is incredible. And I imagine that you'll all be just as moved as I was. Sasha, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was a pleasure, right?
1: Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.
5: Hi, my name is Lucine Branham. I'm from Macon, Georgia. I've lived here all my life.
0: The voice you just heard was my Aunt Lucine, who lives in Macon, Georgia. And as you just heard, she has a pretty representative version of the famous Southern drawl.
3: Lane Green writes Johnson, our column on language.
0: As you can hear from my voice, I do not have that accent, though I grew up in Georgia myself, just two hours north of Macon in Atlanta, and I was born in Tennessee. The differences between our accents are confirmed in a new study from four linguists about the decline of the southern accent, specifically in the state of Georgia.
3: Lane, let's talk about the accent first. Describe it. Can you do it?
0: The southern accent is, by and large, a matter of vowels. I can do it because I have heard it a lot, but some of it will exaggerate a bit for effect. Basically, the vowels tend to become diphthongs, which means they two vowels run together, and that's why it gives it that drawling quality. So instead of kit, you'll often hear kiit which is like Kiit two vowels, e and i going together. The vowel in face will become something like face. The vowel in ride will become a monothong, which means one vowel, and it'll become ride. There are various elements to it, but most of what we're talking about has to do with these changes in vowels. There are some variations among Southern accents. For example, in the inland, highland areas of the South. Places like East Tennessee, where I was born, you'll tend to hear the word right with a monophthong, with one vowel. People say rat instead of right. But in the lowland South, a place like Macon, Georgia, where my father's from, you'll hear right instead of rat. And I should make clear that we're also talking about the Southern white accent. Black speakers in the South also sound different than black speakers in the North, as well as different from white speakers in the South. But this is a study about the Southern white accent.
3: So what is the study saying about the accent being lost?
0: Well, changes in accent often accompany changes in population. And what happened with the South is that starting in the 1960s and reaching a real furious pace in the 1980s when I moved to Georgia, Americans started to move to the South from other parts of the country and particularly to the biggest cities, most particularly to the city I moved to, which is Atlanta, Georgia. In my case, I have a father from Macon, Georgia, but a mother from Wisconsin. And I moved from Nebraska when I was five years old. So I didn't have the southern accent when I arrived in Georgia and I never acquired it. And the reason is that a lot of the kids that I went to school with, and this story repeated itself in many other places around Georgia, were from other parts of the country. And so they didn't have the southern accent. And if I had had a strong southern accent, I would have to some extent stuck out in my school, even though I was in suburban Atlanta.
3: So over what period has the accent faded away then?
0: so the accent really peaks in the children of the baby boom people born in the 1940s to the 1960s a good example of the accent from atlanta georgia is jerry reed he's a country musician guitar player and singer from atlanta and he's born in 1937 just before the baby boom but he has a good representative southern accent
1: i worked about 20 shows for the united states air force over in the Far East. We worked the Philippines.
0: To give you a contrast, here's a late baby boomer, Travis Tritt, another country singer. He's born in 1963, and again, not too far away from where I lived in Georgia. And he has a much lighter version of the Southern accent.
4: You remember the old song, uh, trailers for sailor rent, and it had that little snap thing going, you know, in the background.
0: The study we're talking about found that the Southern accent really starts to decline in Generation X, which is roughly in my generation. And it's the generation of Jason Aldean, another country singer. He's born in 1977, also in Macon, Georgia, my father's hometown. But you can hear that he has a relatively mild version of the Southern accent as well.
3: Uh, I'm excited for playoff baseball and college football happening. That's my favorite time of the year. So. And
0: finally, you can hear the accent of Thomas Rhett. And he is a millennial country singer from the state of Georgia. And if you listen to this, you'll hear that he hardly has a Southern accent at all. I mean, I've said this a bunch, but like, I feel like when we make our set list for our American dates, it's pretty set in stone.
3: And so what is happening to this drawl in younger Georgians?
0: In the southern vowel shift or the southern drawl, the vowels get a little higher in the mouth, which means that your tongue is a little higher up in the mouth when you pronounce them. So a vowel like the one in dress becomes something like dress. It's a little higher in the drawl. What's going on with the younger Georgians is that their vowels are actually going lower. Now, the researchers in this study don't suggest that the accent is about to disappear completely, but merely that fewer young Southerners have it than did in the past. A total loss of the southern accent would, in my view, and in a lot of people's view, be a real tragic loss. Fortunately, though, it doesn't look like the accent is going to disappear overnight. What we're seeing is a gentle shift in the southern accent, and that's because people are moving to the south. And so if you like, you can think of this as also part of a good phenomenon as the south gets gradually more integrated into the rest of the country. How so? Well, the most recent census, which was taken in 2020, shows that Americans are still flocking to cities in the South. to that extent, that's a good thing. That makes the region more mixed. It makes it more diverse politically, linguistically, culturally. You are seeing more racial diversity in the region. I think its gradual integration or approach to the rest of the country can be seen as a good thing.
3: Lane, thank you so much for joining
0: us. Thank you, Aura.
2: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Larniuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Kevin Kaners and Maggie Khadifa, and our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane, with extra production help this week from Benji Guy, Peter Granitz, and Lawrence Knight. We'll all see you back here on Monday.
1: Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.